All right, well, good morning, church. Listen, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Will Franco. I'm one of the pastors here at Tri-Village Church. It's so good to see all your beautiful faces here this morning. And I don't know if you know, but today we are celebrating a birthday here at Tri-Village Church. And really grateful for that. Let's praise the Lord for... So we, we just turned three, so I'm not sure if we're toddlers anymore. I don't know what's going on. I know that I personally ignored my kids the first three years of their life, so I don't even know what stage. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, but we're three. Someone said we're on dog year, so we're actually 21, uh, and so we're going out drinking after this. Uh, anyways, so uh, really excited about that. We'll bring that up more at the end, uh, towards the end of the service. But this morning, we are excited to be continuing our series entitled Restored. And uh, what we are doing in this series is we are working our way through the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. And we're going to be working our way through the entire chapter, which is verses 1 through 20. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Now, this morning, um, usually we, we read through the entire passage, but this morning, because there's communion for the sake of time, I'm going to be reading as we go through instead of reading it all up front um, and uh, just kind of FYI on that. So make sure you turn to Nehemiah 2. And here's what, what, what I'm excited about this morning. This morning, as we address Nehemiah chapter 2, we are going to unpack and address a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. As a matter of fact, I would argue that over the past three years uh, since we've launched Tri-Village, this is probably the area or the subject that I have most read on uh, since becoming the pastor of Tri-Village Church. It's an area that when, I, when we launched Tri-Village, I was like, this is an area where I really need to grow. And so I want to make sure I read and learn as much as I can. And so uh, the subject that we are going to be addressing this morning is the subject of leadership, leadership. And what really stood out to me as I was studying and working my way through this passage is that Nehemiah, uh, in many ways, summarizes the past three years of reading. Like all these things that I thought were like brand new, like topics and, you know, uh, principles for leadership. I look at the life of Nehemiah and I was blown away by the fact that many of those things he just does naturally. He really was a leader of leaders. I would argue, in fact, that he's probably outside of Jesus one of the best leaders in biblical history. Actually, I would argue that he is one of the best leaders in human history. Like that's how ridiculously gifted as a leader Nehemiah is. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to be looking at his leadership. And as we jump in, here's what I want you to know. You are a leader whether you know it or not, right? Every single one of us is called to lead to one degree or another. The the first type of leadership that we all participate in is self-leadership. As a matter of fact, most leadership books I read almost always have a section on self-leadership. Because you can't lead yourself, then you can't lead others, right? And then maybe your leadership then is your leadership of your family. Maybe you're a parent, right, of of children. Maybe you're a grandparent and you have grandchildren. Maybe you're an uncle or or an aunt and you have nieces and nephews. Maybe you lead a Bible study. Maybe you are a part of a sports team and you play a leadership role there. But the reality is that every single one of us is a leader to one degree or another. Every single one of us is leading on some sort of stage or platform. And so because of that, I think that if you don't see yourself as a leader, you can easily kind of just sit this one out and say, oh, this has nothing to do with me. But I would argue that it has something to do with all of us. Because even if you're not currently in a leadership role now, it's only a matter of time before you will be. Because leadership, according to John Maxwell, is just influence. 
And so anyone that you are influencing, you are a leader of. Okay? So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at the subject of leadership through the lens of Nehemiah 2. And what we see here is that there are, making sure this looks okay because that screen looks weird. Okay. Um, what, we, what we see here is that there are two truths. We're going to look at this concept of leadership uh, under two headings. We are going to begin by looking at the marks of leadership, and then we are going to conclude by looking at the model for leadership. All right. So we're going to begin with the marks of it, and we're going to conclude with the model for it. Now, in this passage, what we see is that there are four marks or four characteristics that Nehemiah displays for us. Now, actually, it's five marks, uh, but I don't want my children's director to get mad at me because I preach too long. So I'm just going to say it's four, and then I'm going to just add one at the end. She won't know, okay? So consider it like a bonus track, right? Like the the end credit scene in a Marvel movie. It's just going to pop up, and you'll be like, oh, there it is, right? And you better believe it starts with E too, okay? Just letting you know in case you were wondering. Here is what the four marks, and see, funny enough, this week as I was studying, I was looking at this list, and it was four E's, technically five E's. And, and, and back when I was in high school, instead of F's, we got E's. So it reminded me of my report card back in the day. I was like, I hope my mom doesn't have any, you know, flashbacks during the sermon. But here are the five uh, marks of leadership uh, that Nehemiah displays here in this passage. Uh, The first mark of leadership is he endured. And the second thing he did is he engaged. Uh, The fourth thing, sorry, yeah, the third thing he did is he envisioned. The fourth thing he did is he was embattled. He was an embattled leader. And the fifth thing, which is not there, is he equipped. We'll get to that one when we get there, okay? So, So let's begin with the first thing. The first thing that Nehemiah does in his leadership that we must do if we want to be uh, godly leaders like Nehemiah is he endured. He endured. Look what it says uh, in verses 1 and 2 of the passage. It says, in the month of Nisan, or Nisan, depending on what car you like, in the month of uh, Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, now stop there. Just pause right there, okay? What's interesting is that the reason why I'm stopping right there is because to us, it just seems like uh, Nehemiah, who's the one who writes this, is just letting us know when he talked to the king. But what's fascinating is that if you compare verse 1 of chapter 2 with verse 1 of chapter 1, and you go, go to the next thing, it says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. Okay? So we, we've, given, we've been given two timestamps here. Chapter 1, it's the month of Kislev, and if you go back to chapter 2, it's the month of Nisan. And so then the question is, why is Nehemiah telling us a calendar? Why is he letting us know the timeline? Because what I need you to see is that for us, that really doesn't mean much. But according to uh, Jewish scholars, according to the calendar that Nehemiah was working off of, from the moment Nehemiah heard the news to the moment Nehemiah responded to the news, it was four months. Nehemiah took 16 weeks to sit on and pray about the situation. 16 weeks. Many of us can't wait 16 minutes. 16 weeks of prayer. Four months of seeking the Lord. And we saw the type of prayers he was praying last week. This is an intense prayer life that this man has. And he's seeking the Lord. It says he was weeping and mourning. And that's a long time to be praying. But what we see is that the first thing Nehemiah did is he endured. 
Now, the reason why I use the word endured, well, other than the fact that it starts with E, but, but the reason why I use the word endured and not wait is because anyone here who's ever waited on the Lord for anything knows that after a while, it feels more like endurance than waiting. Amen? Amen. And if you haven't experienced that, you're just not old enough yet. You haven't walked with Jesus yet. Not long enough yet. Because if you walk with Jesus long enough, there are going to be seasons where he is going to make you pause and he is going to make you wait. And it, after a while, it feels much more like endurance than waiting. Amen. You literally need to endure because of how long that season takes. So what I want you to see here, and this is really important, Nehemiah, he hears the news and instead of leaping into action, which is what many of us would do, he leaps into adoration. Instead of leaping into action, he leaps into adoration. He, he, he gets to a place where he sees, okay, I, there's obviously something I have to do here, but before I do anything, I want to make sure that I am aligned with what God's will is for this situation and not just my will for this situation. He pauses he endures, he waits in order to hear from the Lord. Before he hears from anyone else, he hears from the Lord. So, so, so one of us, what many of us do, and I know this is how I'm wired, when we get to situations like this, we are hard at work. Nehemiah is hard at rest. We're not, he's not hard at work, he's hard at rest. And I don't know about you, but I would argue that it's harder to be at rest than to be at work. Because when you're at work, then you're, you're part of it, right? You're controlling something, or you think you are. But Nehemiah was hard at rest, not hard at work. He knew that before he was to approach the king of Persia, he wanted to adore the king of heaven. I'm going to adore the king of heaven so that by the time I have an opportunity to approach the king of Persia, the king of Persia is just another dude. Because my king is much more powerful than that king. He's a, permanent, he's, a, he's, a, he's a temporary king, but I serve a permanent king, an eternal king. And so he changes his perspective by spending time with the Lord. Okay? But here's the thing, guys. Here's one of the things I need you to see as, we, as, we, as, 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 as God will inevitably put you in seasons of waiting. He will inevitably, inevitably put you in seasons of, of enduring. One of the things that you have to realize that we are prone to forget, and if I'm being honest, Satan wants us to forget, is that there is a difference between a toll booth and a dead end. Okay? And what happens is, is that many Christians, whenever God pauses us, we confuse what's a toll booth with a dead end. Okay? And we're sitting there and we're like, you abandoned me. You forgot me. You only got me halfway through the journey and you left me in the middle of it. But don't ever confuse a toll booth with a dead end. A dead end is I got nowhere else to go. I'm at the end of the road. A toll booth, think about what a toll booth is. It is a strategic stop where there is an exchange between two parties. And so what God is doing maybe in this season of waiting is he is putting you at a toll, toll stop, not a dead end. So you are here, and now at this, toll, at, this, at this toll stop, there is to be an exchange between two parties. And so we just need to be aware of the fact that God, there's no such thing as a waiting season is not a wasted season with the Lord. Amen. Just because I'm waiting doesn't mean it's wasted. Amen. Now, if you see it as wasted, 
then it probably will be wasted. But when you change your perspective and you see it as a toll booth where there's an exchange that God wants to make with you instead of a dead end where God has abandoned you, you approach the season completely different. Okay? And here's what I need you to see. Because one of the things that we might be falling into, especially up to this point in the story, is you might be thinking, okay, well, Nehemiah, here's the news. He prays for four months, and, and even here in verse 1, it, it just shows you how long he's waited. So what does that mean? Do I never do anything about the situation? No, it, God has no issue with you addressing the circumstance. But he only wants you to address the circumstance after you address Christ. Amen. Address Christ, Amen. and then address the circumstance. It's like R.A. Torrey, one of the presidents of Moody, one day, he said, a long time ago, he said that you can do a lot, a lot of things other than pray, but you can't do anything until you've prayed. You could do, God wants you to do something, right? That's the relationship between sovereignty and responsibility. But, 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 remind, but remember that you can do a lot of things after you prayed, but you better start with prayer. You can address the circumstance, but only after you've addressed Christ. That, that's that's the, the, the balance here that I think it's quick, we're quick to forget. And whenever God puts you in this season, if you are a good steward of that season, you actually don't end up wasting the time of that season. You are actually investing it. I'm not wasting the time. I'm investing the time if I look at it correctly. Okay? So the first thing that we see that a good godly leader must do is a good godly leader must go through seasons of endurance. You must endure in order to honor God. The second thing Nehemiah does, and we're going to do a lot more reading in this section, is he engaged. After enduring, he finally engages. Look what it says in the next part of the passage. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? Now, keep the mental note there. He never mentions Jerusalem. Okay, remember that. And its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed again. Listen to this. He does another prayer. But this was a short one. It's a, what the commentators call a shotgun prayer. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Guys, listen. Hold on. What a lot of us do, though, is that's the only type of prayer we do. Amen. He's only doing this type of prayer because he spent four months doing the deeper prayer. Amen. Okay? Amen. But a lot of us skip right past chapter one and be like, oh, I pray like that all the time. Hey, God, I'm already here, so fix it. Right? So then I prayed to the God of heaven, and look what it says next. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, still hasn't mentioned Jerusalem, where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, and commentators say that Nehemiah is so strategic that he actually wanted the queen there uh, because it would help him in getting favor. With the king sitting, queen sitting beside him asked, how long will your journey take? And well, when, you, when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. We don't know how long, much time he gives him, but he gives him a time. In verse 7, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates. Now, for those of you who were here last week, we looked at the map. The trans-Euphrates was anything past the Euphrates River. The, the, the Susa was over here. Uh, and then you go west, which I don't know if I'm pointing east for you, but just follow along with me. As you go west, there's the Euphrates River. The Trans-Euphrates was everything on the other side 
of the Euphrates River. So it says, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of, trans, of, the, of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the people and for the city wall and for the residents. Uh, I will... I will occupy. Okay, uh, next slide. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. Uh, the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the uh, Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed uh, that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And by night, I went through the valley, of, the valley gate, through the jackal wall, well, and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire." When I, then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the, uh, the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Okay, so here's what we see. Nehemiah is finally engaging. But this is where you start seeing just the incredible gifts of leadership that Nehemiah has. His engagement is a very informed engagement. In other words, what he's doing here is not just off the cuff. You can tell that this man was very, very informed. Okay? The first way that we see that he's informed is that even though Nehemiah was praying which is clear in verse four, chapter 1, at the same time, Nehemiah was planning. And, and, and a lot of times, I don't know why we do this, but as Christians, we feel like we could only do one or the other. I'm either in a season of praying or in a season of planning. It's either all up to me or all up to God. And some of us are more of the prayers that we just stay in the season of prayer and never get out of it. And you have Christians who've been praying for something for three years and still haven't done anything about it, Right? Man, I'm praying if I should share the gospel with my neighbors. Uh, yeah, don't pray about it. You should. Amen. Oh, I'm praying if I should date this non-Christian. No, no, don't even pray about it. You shouldn't. Something to pray about. Right? But, but Nehemiah, he, he gets to a place where he, he's, he's praying, but simultaneously he's planning. And we know he's planning because when the opportunity finally comes up, he didn't know when the king was going to say something. Because as you can tell, it's the king that initiates the conversation. But apparently it took the king four months to get there. Some commentators say that it's because he had more than one cupbearer and it was four months from when Nehemiah had seen him last. Okay? But regardless of the reason, when he finally is given the opportunity, Nehemiah is ready. And he starts to explain to this individual, this king, what he wanted. And you could tell that he wasn't just praying blindly, but during his praying, he was also planning. And we know he was because he intentionally, look at how informed Nehemiah is. He never mentions the city of Jerusalem. Why is that important? Because last week we mentioned that a few years prior to this, Ezra had gone with the Jews to try to rebuild the wall. 
And the enemies that were surrounding Jerusalem sent word to Artaxerxes and said, hey, you don't want Jerusalem to get its walls back. Because you might not know this because you're young, but Jerusalem is a very stiff-necked, rebellious city. And there's a reason why Nebuchadnezzar teared them down all those years ago. And so what does King Artaxerxes I do? He stops the building of the wall. So clearly he didn't have high hopes for Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is so prepared that he intentionally does not mention Jerusalem, knowing that King Artaxerxes probably doesn't have that great of feelings towards Jerusalem. Never mentions the city. He says, look, my people are in turmoil. They're in disgrace. They're in trouble. They need help. Send me. But he's very tactful with what he says. But here's the thing. We also know that he's prepared and that he's planned because he doesn't just ask, hey, can you send me? No, no, no. He asked for very specific things. He's like, look, I need an a, 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 a army officers to come with me. I need you to connect me with Asaph, which is, according to commentators, was another Jewish man, which is a very Cuban thing, by the way. I think Nehemiah might have been Cuban because Cubans always know where other Cubans are. And they're like, that guy's got the hookup. Yeah. Hey, connect me with, uh, with Carlos. Yeah, he got it. Yeah, Carlos. Yeah. Wilfredo III. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Cubans always know where the hookup is, right? So he knows the name of the guy who runs the royal park. He, he mentions him by name. So he's not, he, he is prepared. In other words, he hasn't just been praying, he's been planning. Amen. Those do not necessarily rival each other. You can do both. Okay? But then what's, what's awesome, though, is that when he finally gets the opportunity to go, you could tell that not only is he uh, engaged, informed in his engagement, not just when he's with the king, but then when he finally then arrives in uh, uh, Jerusalem, he arrives there, and here's what's, what's so uh, fascinating about the man that God sends. God sends someone or a leader from the outside to deal with the problem that was going on inside. He sends an outside leader with a different perspective, with a different approach, with a different strategy that clearly the people could not see. Keep that mental note because we're going to bring that up later. God sends an outside leader. To help his people. So here's what happens. As Nehemiah arrives, he says nothing to nobody. And when he gets there, he rests for three days. And we'll come back to that in a second. He rests for three days. And then he goes out by himself to go and examine the walls of Jerusalem. But here's what's important. God sends an outside leader to challenge the status quo. And here's what I mean by the status quo. What we can tell in this story, in the history of Israel, they had already tried to rebuild. Obviously, the walls were, were torn down during the times of Nebuchadnezzar. They, during the days of Zerubbabel, they tried to rebuild. That didn't work. During the day of Ezra, they had tried to rebuild. It didn't work. And what commentators say is that it's almost like Jerusalem had gotten to a place where they had just accepted the status quo. They were going to be a city without walls. That was it. It was the new normal. But here's why Nehemiah was so important in redemptive history. Think about this. There's been moments in history where God sends a person, and it doesn't seem like it's a last-second thing, but it's a very last-second thing. If Nehemiah doesn't show up and restore the walls of Jerusalem, then the, the Jewish culture is destroyed, gone. The temple is gone. The sacrificial system is gone. And if you don't have a Jewish culture, a Jewish temple, a Jewish system, you don't have a Jewish Messiah. There would have been no place for Jesus to enter because the city wouldn't have existed. This is 400 years before Jesus. So he sends Nehemiah 
at the perfect time, at the last second, because Jerusalem had already accepted the status quo. And then here's another thing that I saw this week that just, again, keep a mental note here. This is all coming up later on at the end when I get excited. But, but, but what, what, what's crazy is that Nehemiah, it's an outside leader, shows up to examine this inside problem. And then when he examines the wall, don't miss it, he doesn't examine the wall from the inside out. He examines the wall from the outside in. Why is that important? Because Nehemiah wanted to look at the wall from the perspective of the enemy. I'm preaching right now. I know y'all still sleeping, but I'm preaching right now. And so I'm going to just keep doing it. And whenever you join me, you join me, okay? Because here, here's what we see. Nehemiah sees it from the outside perspective because he wanted to see the walls of Jerusalem from the enemy's perspective. He wanted to see what will the enemy see when they arrive and what do I have to navigate as a result. Okay? Keep that in mind. But then, so, so, so he shows up, he, he examines the, the situation, but what stands out to me this week as I was preparing is that God raises up different people to carry out different plans for the same people. Different individuals to carry out different plans for the same people, which was Israel. Here's what I mean. Nehemiah is sent by God, right, to, to build the walls of Jerusalem. But a few years earlier, Ezra had been sent by God to do the very same thing. But if you realize and you look back at the story of Ezra, Ezra doesn't actually have an armed guard. He doesn't have all the resources that Nehemiah has. He doesn't. Why? Because he wasn't in the position that Nehemiah was in. Now, one of the things that we can do is say, oh, well, that means Nehemiah didn't have as much faith as Ezra did. Because Ezra went with no resources. He went by faith. And guess what? Ezra also failed. But here's why this is important and why I want to pause here. One of the things that we can do if we're not careful is we can assume that, oh, if it's the same problem, God's going to call the same type of person to do the same type of thing. But God can actually call different people to do different things in light of the same situation. And one of the things that we can do is we can baptize the way we do things. We can baptize our methodologies. We can idolize our differences. And, oh, well, you're not doing it that well. That means you clearly aren't following the Lord in this situation because I would do this. Well, that's fine because you have two people responding to the same situation in completely different ways. Here's what's, what's so crazy. When you look at Nehemiah, I brought this up last week. Nehemiah's contemporaries were Ezra the priest and Malachi the prophet. And one of the books that I read a few years ago talked about how one of the ways that you can categorize spiritual gifts is the, the roles that Jesus played. Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. He said you can use those three categories to determine what gifts God's given you. Some people have priestly gifts. Some people have prophet gifts. And then some people have kingly gifts. The kingly gifts are the people who are good at administration. And they're good at vision. And they're good at planning. And they're good at organizing. Think about how, how amazing God is. He sends, right, a priest who had priestly gifts, and now he's sending a kingly gift person. Completely different set of gifts. But he had the gifts that were needed in order to accomplish the task. And one of the things that could happen in the kingdom of God is that those people who are more kingly gifted and have the gift of administration and planning and organizing, the church usually isn't well planned or organized or administrative at all, 
And so those people can sometimes feel that the only place God can use me is out there. He can't use me for his kingdom because my gifts don't work here. Clearly, though, your gifts do work here. And so if you're the, the, the math person, the engineer person, the, the, the planner, the thinker, the, clearly there's a place for you in the kingdom of God. God doesn't just need prophets and priests. He needs kings. That's very important as you, as you navigate what it looks like to follow God. Here's the thing. I would describe myself as more of a prophet king type person based on my gifts, right? Kind of priestly, but not really. More prophet king, right? But what's, what's, what's funny is I wouldn't have been able to do what Nehemiah did. I know I wouldn't have because I would have messed this up from the get. Okay? Just the fact that in verse 11, in what it says in verse 11, he says, this is crazy. He summarizes his trip in verse 11 is, I went to Jerusalem. Now that seems like, oh, okay, he went to Jerusalem. Guys, that was 700 miles. Took possibly two months of travel. Listen, if I was Nehemiah, this book would be three times as long. Because I would have told you how each day went and how bad it was. <laughs> day one, it's hot out here, yo. Day three, it's still hot out here. Day seven, I wrestled with God last night. He won. You know what I mean? Like, day 21, hey, uh, 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 it, sm it smells a little weird here on the trip. Uh, uh, the, the camel might be gassy. And then later on that day, P.S., uh, actually, you know what? It's not the camel. It's me. I ate some bad hummus. Day 23, oh, dang. I went the whole wrong direction. I was supposed to go. I can't find my way anywhere. If they go west, I would have gone east. Would have ended up in Denver or something. Denver. <laughs> and then, and then, I don't know how to fix anything. So I would have gotten to the wall, and I would have done exactly what I do at my house when something is broken. It, 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 I'll give you a perfect example. The other day, uh, uh, well, it was just a few months ago. Everything for me is the other day. But a few months ago, our, our car broke down, and there was steam, and there was whatever. And so my wife knows I don't know how to do anything, but my girls don't know that yet. So I want to make them think like, I know what I'm doing. And so I open the trunk. Uh, the, 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 the trunk. I open. That just shows you. I, I, I open the hood, and there's steam and stuff, and I'm like, <sighs> And the girls are like, Papi, I'm like, no, no, you don't want to look. Don't look. They're like, what is it? Oh, no, you don't, honey. Oh. And I just look at it. Oh. And my girls think I know what I'm doing. They have no, they have no idea that I don't know what is even steaming or what's missing. or The whole engine can be gone and I wouldn't know. Right? That's exactly what I've done. What I, I would have gone to the wall of Jerusalem and be like, oh, man, this is bad, guys. <sighs> yeah, hey, Jebediah, come here, man. Look, look at this. <laughs> Jebediah. I'm naming the Duggar kids. But anyway, so, hey, come here, come here, Jeremiah. Look, 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 look. What? We got to go to Menards, dog. Like, this is bad. I would be the worst person ever to do this work. But Nehemiah shows up, and God has equipped him, equipped him perfectly for this event, for this situation. And so your gifts are not an accident. Your background is not an accident. Your vocation is not an accident. And God has a place for every person in his kingdom. So let's go to the third point, the third thing. The third thing Nehemiah does is he envisioned. He endured, he engaged, then he envisioned. And look what it says in the next section. 
It says, then I said to them, he's talking to the people, to the leaders of, of Israel. He says, then I said to them, you see. Everybody say, you see. <laughs> you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding, and so they began this good work. So the, the third thing that Nehemiah does is after he has endured and after he has engaged, he now starts to envision, he starts to give a vision to these people. Hey, listen, let me tell you what God has been doing, and let me bring you into what he's been up to. He gives them a clear vision of the situation. He says, you see. He wants them to see three things. One, he wants them to see the unity of the people because he says, you see the trouble we are in. He doesn't say the trouble you are in. He says we. In other words, I am just as much a part of this as you are. So he wants them to see the unity of God's people. But then he wants them to see the severity of the problem because he says, look, Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. And then at the end, he says, we will no longer be in disgrace. Look, he's not minimizing the situation at all. He's saying, look, things are really, really, really bad. And he wants them to see that. But then he not only wants them to see the unity of the people, he not only wants them to see the severity of the problem, but he also wants them to see the glory of the provider. Because he says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God. Nehemiah has a very balanced vision. And what I love about his leadership, which is something we should take note of as we lead our families, our companies, our teams, our Bible studies, whatever it is you are leading, is that Nehemiah, on the one hand, is very honest about the present, but very hopeful about the future. Amen. I think that's the balance we have. We have to have, right? Because if you're not honest about the present, you're not going to actually deal with what's happening. But if you're not hopeful about the future, then you're not going to take any action. And his balance is he's honest, but he's hopeful. And you see the type of leader he is, he, because clearly we've seen his clear head. He's a very clear-headed thinker because of all the planning he's done. He's obviously a, a, an able worker because he's willing to do the work that's necessary. We've already seen his head. We've seen his heart. Sorry, we've seen his head and his hands, but now we see his heart because he says, look, I am with you in this. You're not alone. I, my heart breaks for you. I want to do something about this with you. And that's, that's the balance that Nehemiah brings in this situation. He, he is not scared to meet the people where they are. On the one hand, he says, look, I want to give you, I want to envision the future, but the only way we're going to have hope for the future is if I encourage you with the past. God has done all this up to this point, so why is he going to stop now? And that's the balance that he brings in his leadership. And so a part of our leadership, if we're, wherever God calls you to lead, is to have a clear vision. But that vision, it's not from you, it's from the Lord. Amen. You won't be able to endure you won't be able to engage. You won't be able to envision. If the vision isn't from God, Amen. obstacles are going to come, Amen. and you won't be able to see it through. The last thing he does is he embattled. I, I, I had to go look for this word. I, I needed something with an E. And, and embattled essentially is he was an embattled leader. What I mean by that is Nehemiah was an individual who experienced opposition from the moment he arrives in Jerusalem, he experiences opposition. 
He was someone who experienced hardships. He was someone who had very, very clear enemies. Look what it says here in the last part of the passage. It says, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Then it says, verse 20. All right, so, so he responds to them, and it's a great response. You should read it. And so, but what I want you to see is that in this passage, uh, Nehemiah is given, he, he has, according to this passage, there are three enemies that are trying to stop the work. It's the same three enemies that stopped Ezra from doing his work. Same guys, showing up again. And it says it's Sanballat, it's Tobiah, and it's Geshem. Now, what commentators say is that Sanballat, according to other historical records, was actually a governor in Samaria. He was a Samaritan governor. So the Samaritans hated the Jews. So no surprise he's there. Then Tobiah, the Ammonite, the Ammonites also hated the Jews. Ever since the book of Deuteronomy, they were mortal enemies of the Jews. Okay? Now Geshem, here's what commentators say, was easily the most powerful of all the three, but he was also the one least committed to the cause. So he doesn't show up all the time. The other two are always there. Geshem shows up sometimes. But he was easily, according to records, the most powerful. Actually, it's probably good that he wasn't all the way in. Actually, it doesn't even matter if he's all the way in. God still would have been able to do what he had to do. But what I'm saying is, according to the commentators, Geshem was the one that was least committed to stopping Jerusalem from being rebuilt. But what's crazy is this week, as I was looking at the map and how it all works out, based on where each one of these men were from, literally, these men based on where their, their regions they came from, were surrounding Jerusalem. They were from the north, south, the east, and the west. Jerusalem is literally surrounded by enemies. And these men represent just how dire the situation actually was. Okay? But here's what I need you to see. Nehemiah here is navigating opposition. He is an embattled leader. He, he, he understands that if I'm going to do God's plan in God's way, there is going to be resistance, both physical, physical, political, and spiritual resistance. He expects it. And one of the things that we have to realize is that regardless of what type of leadership God is calling you to do, regardless of what season you are currently in, there is going to be opposition. That opposition, get here, get, volume here, can come from the enemy, can come from the world, can come from other Christians, and can come from within. Sometimes your greatest enemy is your flesh. You don't even need someone on the outside because you're a hot mess on the inside. But he is showing us here that we are to expect opposition. Don't be surprised. Even, that's what James says, when you experience trials of various kinds. Because you are going to. It is going to happen. So, so, so here's what I want you to see, though, that I think is important for our Christian life and for our leadership, the leadership that God's calling us to display. What I love about Nehemiah, though, is that even though the opposition is real, okay, and later on he's going to see that the opposition doesn't just come from the, the pagans, it comes from the Israelites. They, they are the ones just self-sabotaging the, the whole project. But what's crazy is Nehemiah, he, he, he has to deal with this opposition, but there's something that Nehemiah had that Ezra didn't have. Nehemiah has been given the authority and the resources of a king. So he anticipates the opposition, but the authority and the resources he's been given is greater than the opposition. 
So he receives authority and, uh, and, and, and resources from a king, and that's what allows him to deal with the opposition that he's facing. You know where I'm going with this, right? You and I have been given authority and resources in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing worse than a Christian who does not understand or realize the authority and the resources they've been given in Jesus. And there's nothing that Satan wants to keep you from more than the authority and the resources you have in Jesus Christ. Once you understand you have that, then the opposition is going to come, but you know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That's what we see. That's why in 2 Kings chapter 6, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, you have Elisha. Elisha is being used by God to inform the king of Israel what the king of Aram is doing. Uh, the king of Aram gets really angry and bothered by the whole thing. So he shows up, sends men to go kill Elisha. So Elisha and his assistant wake up in the morning. His assistant goes out, I don't know, for a morning pee, whatever he does. He goes outside. He's like, oh, snap. This is bad. Uh, there's a bunch of soldiers out here, right? People peed in the Bible, guys. Okay, so, 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 so he goes out there. And he, he, he sees, he's like, he, he wakes up, Elisha, hey, hey, listen, man, I don't know if you know, but there's soldiers and horses and there's an army out here for us. Elijah gets up calmly and says, listen, brother, greater, we, we have a greater number than they do. He's like, what are you talking about? It's just us. Is this guy crazy? He says, then Elisha prays, Lord, help him see, give him eyes to see. When the Lord gives him eyes to see, what he sees is that even though they're surrounded by the enemy, the enemy is surrounded by God. Amen. And there are, there are angels and there are, there are horses. All, the, all the, the army of heaven is there. And so get this, even though we are surrounded by a problem, the problem solver is surrounding the problem. And so get this, God is a problem for our problem. That's what we see. Once you get that, opposition's going to come. But you will rest in the authority and resources, not that you have, but that have been given to you in Christ Jesus. Okay? So that's the fourth step or mark. The last one, the bonus track, real quick, uh, is he, he equipped, this is just for my own thing, he equipped the people because in chapter 3, he then proceeds to, I don't want to get ahead of myself for the next sermon, but in chapter 3, he equips the people. He doesn't just give them a clear vision, a clear destination. He then gives them a clear path to get there, and he equips the people, and each person works on the part of the wall that's in front of them. He equips the people. He doesn't say, hey, you're going to do this for me. He's like, no, you're going to do this with me. He, he delegates. He gives power away, which is always a sign of a healthy leader. Amen. So those are the four things. Can we go to the two points? We've looked at the marks of leadership. I want to conclude this morning by looking at the model for leadership. Here's the thing about the model. Here's why I want to end with the model. I wasn't, I didn't know if I was going to bring this up, but we're already here, so I'm going to go ahead and bring this up. Before I jump into the second point, some of you who've been, actually most of you who've been here at Tri-Village, you know where I'm going. You know where the, the second point is. You know where it ends. But I want to give you just really quickly, briefly, a theology of why I do what I do. Okay, the reason why I'm doing, I'm getting really existential now. We're, we're zooming out. I'm telling you what I'm going to do before I do it. I want to give you a theology of preaching because some of you have sat under my preaching and Chad's preaching and Hannibal's preaching and you've sat under our preaching and you've seen it, but you don't understand why we do it. There's a difference uh, between moralistic preaching and gospel-centered preaching. There's a difference between being practical and being pragmatic. Okay. We have just spent several minutes being practical. Hey, here's how you can do this, and here's how you can do that. Here's how you can do this, right? 
But there's a difference between being practical and being pragmatic. Pragmatic is when I give you the practical, and then that's all I give you. And then I go, hey, go do it. So the steps are, then then all of a sudden, you leave as the doer and the hero. The person that's supposed to go do it now is you. Most sermons end here. Most sermons are not just practical, they are pragmatic. They put all their hope in the steps and not in the Savior. So what I need you to see is that even though uh, the preaching here at Tri-Village has imperatives, go and do, it's always in light of the indicative who you are. If you don't understand who you are, you're not going to do what you should. And so, so even though I just gave you a bunch of imperatives, the imperatives will only make sense if they are seen through the lens of the indicative. At the end of the sermon, I want to point you to the only person that's going to do it in you because he's the only person that did it for you. And that wasn't Nehemiah. And that wasn't me. That was Jesus. And so from now on, if you're listening to Moody Radio or whatever radio, any sermon you listen to from now on, if the sermon ends and it's all about you and what you got to do, that's not practical. That's pragmatism. And it's not the gospel. That's why we do this. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. (laughs) The model for leadership. Here's the thing about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great guy. Clearly, Nehemiah is a great leader. As a matter of fact, you go through almost the entire book without Nehemiah making one single mistake. Nehemiah is a great leader, and this is a great, great story. But if we stop here, that it's incomplete. We're not getting the full story. Nehemiah is a great leader, and this is a great story, but Nehemiah points us to a greater leader and to a greater story. The only way we will ever actually understand the meaning of this chapter in particular in this book in general is if we put it in the context of a greater redemptive story that points us to a greater leader. And the greater leader is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate Nehemiah who, get this, is the actual model for leadership. Nehemiah is a model for leadership, Jesus is the model for leadership. And Jesus came not just to be the ultimate model, he came to give you the ultimate motive, okay? So let's break each one of those down. The first thing Jesus came to do is he came to be the ultimate model for leadership. Now, follow with me here because this is really important. Remember what I said earlier, that's why you got to be paying attention. Earlier I said that God knew that in order to deal with the internal problem, he had to send an external solution, right? He sends a leader from the outside. But what's crazy is Nehemiah shows up, and the reason why he was the perfect leader for the perfect time is because Nehemiah brings fresh eyes, and when he shows up, he brings a new perspective. He brings a new approach. He brings a new strategy. But Jesus is the greater Nehemiah because he came from the outside outside. He wasn't living on this earth. He came from the outside. He was an outside leader. He shows up and he gives us a new perspective. He gives us a new approach. He gives us a new strategy. But unlike Nehemiah, he also came to give us a new heart. He came to give us a new covenant. He came to give us a new community. He came to give us a new family. He came to give us a new heaven and a new earth. And that's why Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. He shows up and changes everything. So so, so Nehemiah is a leader of leaders. Jesus is the leader of leaders. Why is he the leader of leaders? Because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the hope of hopes and the prince of peace. That's why Jesus is the leader of leaders. And that's why the sermon has to end with him. Because Nehemiah is just like us. He needed the gospel just as much as we do. That's why we got to end with him. But 
think about this. Jesus shows up, and not only the, the, he, he's the greater model because he comes from the outside, right, just like Nehemiah. But then when he gets to where he gets to, remember what happened in the passage? Nehemiah shows up, and the first thing Nehemiah does is he examines the walls of Jerusalem. He examines the walls of Jerusalem. It says that he, he goes around through the hillsides and through the valleys and through the, the, the area outside of Jerusalem, and he examines the walls. But what he's doing, remember what I said, he is examining the walls from the outside so he can see it from the enemy's perspective. But he's, what he, when he does it, what he's doing is he's examining Jerusalem politically and physically. But here's what's crazy. A few hundred years later, a greater Nehemiah walked through those same exact hills, looked at the same exact city. He examined the city just like the first Nehemiah did. But when he looked at the city, it says in Luke 19 that he wept for Jerusalem because he saw how serious the issue was. Jesus examined the this, this city, not politically, not financially, not economically, but spiritually. See, Jesus Christ understood as he examined the city of Jerusalem, the reason why he got emotional is because Jesus understood that their greatest threat, their greatest problem wasn't political, it wasn't physical, it wasn't Sanballat, it wasn't Tobiah, it wasn't Geshem, it wasn't Rome. The greatest issue was Satan, sin, and death. Jesus came to deal with the real enemies, not the perceived ones. That's what we see. So Jesus shows up and does what the first Nehemiah couldn't do. Actually, I came across a passage this week that, that blew my mind. I had to uh, take a praise break because I, I, I had read it clearly, but I had never seen it from this angle. But in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 1, go ahead and jot that down so you can look at it later. It says in that passage that in that day, well, here it is. It says, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Now stop there for a second. This is Isaiah. He's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. He sees a vision of the future Jerusalem. And he says, we have a strong city. And it says this, God makes salvation its walls and its ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. So according to this passage, the, the, the wall of the greater Jerusalem isn't going to be made of wood or steel or concrete, but it's the salvation of the Lord that's the, the wall of this city. The salvation of God. That's why Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. He didn't come to bring temporary walls that were going to be torn down one day. He came to bring the walls of salvation. But what's crazy is verse 2 says, open the gates to the righteous nation, to the nation that keeps faith. That's not us. Nobody can get in if that's the criteria. What's crazy is that Jesus came to make us a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And so we get in, not in our name, but in his name. He died outside the gate so that we might be allowed in the gate. That's what we see. That the, the first Nehemiah, he, he was a mover and he was a shaker and he was an organizer and he was a planner and he was a doer, but he wasn't a savior. Only Jesus can do that. So we see that Jesus came to bring uh, the greater model. But what's crazy about Jesus is that because he is the greater model, he gives us the greater motive. Jesus gives us a motive that for leadership that the first Nehemiah could not give us. Jesus shows up and he gives us an identity. And once you understand what Jesus did for you, and once you understand who you are in Christ, Jesus, it changes how you view yourself. It changes your motive for leading your family, your company, your Bible study, whatever it is that you're leading. Once you understand who Jesus 
Jesus is, it changes how, how you behave. Why? Because now you understand that what defines you is not your leadership, it's his leadership. What defines you is not your role, it's your redeemer. What defines you is not what you do, but what he's done. It changes everything. And so if you get that, what you realize is that it doesn't matter if you are a mother or a father or a doctor or a lawyer or a factory worker or a truck driver. It doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter if you're blue collar or white collar or yellow collar or purple collar. It doesn't matter because what you see when you understand who you are in Jesus is that the greatest title you'll ever have is that you are a child of God. That's good news, guys. I don't know if you got the email, but I sent it. That's good news. It changes everything if you get it. It has to. It has to change everything. Jesus comes and gives us this, this new identity, and then this identity, this vertical identity, it gives us all the motive we need because now we have a, a horizontal intensity. Because think about what it says in the passage. Nehemiah, one of the ways that he encourages the people is he says, I told them what the gracious hand of God had done. Get this. If Nehemiah, who was there before Jesus, before the gospel, before the good news, if Nehemiah had evidence of God's gracious hand at work in his life, how much more evidence do we have? Think about that. That's crazy. He's encouraging the people that he's leading with what the gracious hand of God had done in his life. So I don't care if it's children or grandchildren or employees or Bible study members. I don't care who it is that you are leading. You need to be able to look them in the eye and be able to recount and recall and revisit and remind them of what the gracious hand of God has done. Not in someone else's life, but in your life. That's what we see. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. The greater model who gives us the greater motive. That's why one of the things I say here all the time is that in the Chicago land area, there's only one church. It's not many churches. There's only one church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It's not tri-village and we in Bible church and Iglesia del Pueblo. No, no. There's only one church. And if there's only one church, get this, there's only one leader. And the, listen, the leader of this church is not Will Franco, is not Chad Lowe, is not Lon Allison, it's not Rob Boo, it's not James McDonald, it's not Bill Hybels, it's not Charlie Dates, it's not Reverend Meeks. The only person that leads this church is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we see. Listen, to the degree that you acknowledge Jesus as the model for leadership, to that same degree, you will have access to the motive Amen. for leadership. Amen. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Jeez. Father, we, we come before you this morning. And Lord, as we celebrate the third year anniversary of Tri-Village Church, we thank you that the leader of Tri-Village Church is you. We thank you that the leader of the church in Chicagoland is you. And that regardless of what the re reputation of the church in Chicagoland is, our reputation comes from you. Our security comes from you. Our significance comes from you. Our acceptance comes from you. You determine who we are, not anybody else. And so, Lord, even though your bride is, is uh, rebellious and adulterous and ugly, we thank you that we are lovely, not because we're lovely, but because you've made us lovely. You've called us beautiful. You've called us precious. Thank you for that reality. Thank you for that promise. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.